This morning, I want to continue um, our ser- continue our series. It's probably months since I did the last part in this series, but I hope you can remember a little of what we talked about. If you want to turn to Matthew 5, if you have a Bible, um, maybe you're there already ahead of me. So I want to continue our journey through what is most commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. And as you can see, I've entitled this series, Messiah on the Mount. Um, And our focus throughout the the first few talks, through parts one to four, has been on the topic of kingdom character, okay? Character with a K. I know it's wrong, but I like things to match, so kingdom character. And that's where we will be staying today. And a few months back, it could be even longer, I I can't remember, we started this journey right at the beginning of this well-known collection of teachings given by Jesus uh, during his earthly ministry. And if you missed those parts, I believe, well, it's up to me to put them on, but I think they're on our podcast and on YouTube. So you can check out parts one to four if you missed those. And this Sermon on the Mount. Yep. The Sermon on the Mount, as many of you know, is found in the Gospel of Matthew, beginning in chapter 5 and continuing through chapters 6 and 7. Now, many scholars, those who know more about the Bible than me, a lot more about the Bible than me, believe that this is not a record of one long sermon or discourse. Although in our Bible, it's, if you have a Bible with red lettering, it's a big, long section in red. But most of them don't believe that this was one sermon given at one time. It's a collection or a compilation of some of Jesus' most important teaching and doctrine throughout his earthly ministry. And what Matthew has done for us is wonderfully and very thoughtfully piece all those teaching together into one uh, unified unit. And the reason that it became known as the Sermon on the Mount is because in chapter 5, where it begins, it begins with Jesus ascending up a mountainside, sitting down, and then he begins to teach his disciples. Jesus had been going throughout all of Galilee, teaching in the Jewish synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and diseases. And because of this, because of the healings, because of the preaching, his fame, Matthew tells us, spreads throughout all of Syria, throughout all of Galilee, and throughout all of Judea. And many more people are then brought to Jesus. The sick the lame, those afflicted with various diseases, the demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and Matthew tells us that he heals them all. He heals them all. And in verse 25 of Matthew 4, he writes this, great multitudes follow him from Galilee, from the Decapolis, Judea, Jerusalem, and beyond the Jordan. And let's continue with Matthew as he records for us what happens next. Matthew 5, reading from verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. And you know, the next words to come from the mouth of Jesus are some of the most profound that he will ever speak. And we know them as the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes. And this is the beginning of Jesus's kingdom manifesto. We all have heard our our political parties have a party manifesto. Well, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus's kingdom manifesto. And in the Beatitudes, Jesus will provide a clear, he will provide a concise description of what it is to have kingdom character. What does kingdom character look like? 
which will lead all of his disciples into kingdom conduct because kingdom character always leads to kingdom conduct. We who are to be, who we are to, this is who we are to be as kingdom citizens and what we are to do as kingdom citizens, okay? It's who we are and what we are called to do, how we are called to live. And we know from our previous studies in this series that the words of Jesus on this day to those who were listening to him on that mountainside were both revolutionary and countercultural, okay? And it's message. You know what? I believe that the Beatitudes are still revolutionary and they're still countercultural today. I don't have any more time to spend on the background this morning, but if you want to go back and listen to parts one to four or do your own reading, please do that. But we've got to keep moving because we have a lot to get through. We won't get to our, if I keep talking about this, we won't get to our main meal, our main course for today. And I know you're all hungry for the word of God. Am I right? Good. Well, you should be. I'd love us to read Matthew 5, 3 to 10 together. And here Jesus speaks to his disciples and those gathered around him on this mountainside. This is what he says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Our focus for this morning will be in verse 6. But in our previous studies, we've looked in detail at the context, the background, the meaning, and the application of verses 3, 4, and 5. And I hope you remember that this morning. And what did we learn from the words of Jesus in his first three profound proclamations? Because that's what these are, church. These are kingdom proclamations. What did they teach us concerning true Christian and true kingdom character? What did they reveal to us concerning how we are to live, what we are to do as citizens of the kingdom of God? Well, firstly, when we realize and recognize that we are poor, when we recognize that we are poor in spirit, that we have nothing to give God, that we are spiritual paupers, then God can give us everything that we need. That's where kingdom character starts. It starts with us recognizing and realizing that we are spiritually bankrupt and that God has to provide everything. It's a recognition of spiritual poverty in the sight of a holy God and this enables God to make us spiritually rich and spiritually wealthy in Jesus Christ. Here's the truth this morning, church. You might have nothing in your bank account, but you are spiritually rich in Jesus Amen. You are wealthy this morning. How many of you know you're wealthy? You're wealthy in the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is truly ours and we are people to be congratulated. That's what the word blessed literally means, to be congratulated, to be happy and to be blessed. And this is the first step in forming true kingdom character. Then we moved on to the next. We mourn our sin, okay? And when we mourn our sin, God can then bring us comfort because he is the God of all comfort. Amen. Amen. And this again, 
And I, I said it when, when we talked about this. This verse has nothing to do with death and funerals. If I hear it one more time at a funeral, I'm going to wring somebody's neck. It is not about funerals. It's not about death. It's about a mourning for sin, a deep mourning for sin. Because these, to be honest, these are actually characteristics of people who are alive. Okay? This is a deep mourning for sin. And this, again, is a very real sign of true kingdom character. And again, we are congratulated, we are blessed, and we are the happiest of all people. Church, we should be the happiest people in the world. Are you happy this morning? God calls you blessed. You should be happy. Put a smile on your face for goodness sake. We recognize our spiritual poverty, that we have nothing that we can bring God, and we rely on him for everything. That leads to us mourning for our sin, the sin that separates us from a holy God, that ruins our relationship with God, that puts a gap in between us and the Lord, and then we live in meekness. Do you remember we talked about the horse, the horses? Strength under control. What's this got to do? What is this about? It's about our service, about our surrender, and our submission to his lordship. That's what meekness is. Strength under control. Blessed, happy, to be congratulated are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. We submit ourselves, we surrender ourselves to God in meekness and in humility. Someone said this, we recognize our spiritual poverty, we mourn for sin, we submit and surrender in meekness, and now comes the next stage in the formation of true kingdom character. What is it? We hunger and we thirst for what? Righteousness. Say righteousness. Righteousness. Let's read it again, Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are the, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. The New Living Translation has it like this. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. I know you remember every, every uh, part in this series, we've had a wee tagline, okay? Here's what I want you to go with this morning. Say it with me. They have insatiable desire, yet find deep satisfaction. Okay, no one's saying it. It's awful. Say it with me, nice and loud. They have insatiable desire, yet find deep satisfaction. Okay? That's what I want you to remember this morning. We must not forget that when we are reading and hearing these words of Jesus, that he is speaking to people in the area of Judea and Galilee over 2,000 years ago. It's important always to keep that in your mind. And we've got to understand that things for people in this time were very, very different than what they are for us today. And we, we must keep all of these things in mind when we're trying to discover the true meaning of what Jesus is saying on this mountainside. It's vital to understand the context into which Jesus is speaking so that we do not misunderstand or misapply his words. We know from reading the Gospels that Jesus was a very clever and a very clear communicator. His methods of teaching always struck a chord with the people who heard him, and it was no different here. Jesus used metaphors and analogies and parables that the people could relate to, and that's exactly what he is doing here. But not only does he use a metaphor that people can understand, he uses a metaphor in the context of two of the most basic human needs what are they? Food and water. Food and water. Everyone 
no matter where you live, no matter who you are, no matter what age you are, knows that we need food and water to survive. It's a matter of survival. Food and water are both vital to life. If we don't get food and water, what happens? We die. We die. They are the most basic of needs to human flourishing and human life. And this is the very context that Jesus uses to get his message across. And we need to understand that for the people here that Jesus is speaking to on this mountainside 2,000 years ago, that both hunger and thirst were a very real day-to-day issue. Okay? These people were not rich by, by any means. They were not wealthy. They were common people. The common people. You know what? Bread was expensive. Water was not easily acquired. They couldn't just turn on the tap in the kitchen. They had to walk for maybe tens of miles to get clean water. And they had to save and save to be able to buy enough bread for their families. Look, we complain about the price of bread. It is a bit of a disgrace at the minute. My Vedas went up. (laughs) Terrible. We complain about the price of bread. And when the water gets turned off for one afternoon, hey, water's not on. What are they doing? It'll be on in half an hour. Don't be worrying, love. You'll get your tea then. But you know what? We have it so easy compared to what the people had in Jesus' day. That's the truth. Let's be honest this morning. We have really nothing to complain about, right? Have we? No. We're so blessed. We have a, you walk into the spa, there's a huge choice of bread. You can get soda, you can get vita, you can get pancakes, you can get plain, you can get pan. Who likes pan? I like a wee pan. I like the hail. Loads of cheese and butter on it. And do you know what? Walk, go down the water aisle. There's every single flavor of water that you can want. You can get the plain. You can get the flavored. But back then... For this people, real hunger and real thirst were two very real problems in their lives. And this is why Jesus decides on this metaphor. He uses language that the people can understand and that they can relate to. And we can relate to it as well. I know we can. But what exactly is he getting at? What is he trying to communicate with this metaphor? Well, that's what I hope to answer for all of us this morning as we dig deeper into this profound proclamation. Look, we all know what it feels like to be hungry. We might never know what it is to to actually feel severe starvation, but we know what it is to be hungry, and we know what it feels like to be thirsty. I'm thirsty at the minute, so I'm going to get a drink. As I've said, we might not suffer the pangs of deep, deep hunger or the desire for water like those who heard these words for the first time, who had to walk for tens of miles to get water for their family. But we all know what hunger and thirst does feel like. What do you do when you're hungry? Somebody tell me. Eat. What do you do when you're thirsty? Amen. You're awake. (laughs) And what happens? Now you're satisfied. Your belly's full and you've had a good drink and now you're satisfied. You've canned that rumbling tummy and your thirst has been quenched. All is well with the world. There's nothing better. I was starving last night and I got a kebab out of the Indian and I felt amazing after it. I felt so good. I didn't feel so good this morning, but I felt great last night. And when you're thirsty, you get that drink and it feels so good. You know, this is the way our physical body works in relation to hunger and thirst. We eat, we drink, But then what happens in a few hours, we need to eat and drink again. 
and in a few hours, we need to eat and drink again. And then you go to bed, and then when you get up in the morning, you need to eat and drink again. And then in a few hours, you need to eat and drink again. Some of us eat and drink maybe more than we should. But that, that's the cycle of life, isn't it? Are you seeing a pattern? No matter how many times we eat and drink, we always need to eat and drink again. We are fully satisfied for a time, but then we must be fully satisfied again. And this is a cycle that will go on for your whole lifetime. And this is exactly what Jesus is trying to communicate to the people on this day, on this mountainside. But he doesn't just want them to feed on the physical. No. In fact, he's not even talking about the physical. He's talking about the spiritual. He's talking about the spiritual. And this is where the metaphor comes to life. What does he say again? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness, for they shall be filled. Not blessed are those who hunger and thirst for food and water. It's for righteousness. Jesus is saying here that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness in the same way that they hunger for food and water will be filled and will be satisfied. And those people are the ones who are to be congratulated, who are happy and who are truly blessed. And this is the next step in our journey towards true Christian and true kingdom character. Let me ask you at the outset this morning, are you hungry and thirsty for God? It's a simple question. Are you hungry for God? Are you thirsty for God? Are you hungry for the things of God? Do we hunger for God and the things of God like we hunger for food and for water? These are the questions that, we, that need to be answered by all of us this morning, including myself. I know they're not easy questions to answer, but we must be honest with ourselves and examine ourselves to see if we are truly hungry and if we are truly thirsty for God from day to day and in every way. And what are we to hunger and thirst for exactly? What's Jesus asking us to be hungry and thirsty for? For righteousness. Say it. Righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness like they hunger for food and water from day to day. Now, we need to spend a bit of time on this word righteousness. And you'll forgive me for going a little bit deep, but we have to. For righteousness. Okay, this is the word dikaiosune, the Greek word. This word comes from the root word dikaios, which means equity. Okay, now you might be saying, Pete, what is equity? Well, thankfully I looked it up because I didn't know either. The word equity refers to fairness and justice. And this is the root word of our word that we have translated as righteousness. So you can see there, righteousness comes from equity. This word dikaiosune carries the meaning of integrity of purity, of rightness, of correct thinking, of correct action, and correct feeling. It is two main ways in which it is used. One has a very broad sense, and the other has a narrow sense. Okay, so think about broad, and think about, if you're thinking about broad, think about me. <laughs> okay, think about narrow, think about somebody skinny. The broad sense of righteousness is to be in the state of him who is as he ought to be. Okay, the state of him who is as he ought to be, a condition acceptable to God. And the narrow sense of this word translated as righteousness is justice or virtue, which gives each its due. 
scholars, commentators say that this is a, quite a difficult word to translate. And that is why in many translations you will find either the word righteousness or the word justice. And those are two words in my mind which naturally don't have any connection. Okay, they, they really don't. I don't associate them with one another. But the thing is, God does. He does. And we have to deal with this as we try and understand what Jesus is saying. So where do we start? Well, I think the best thing to do is to think about this word, dikai yosune, that's translated righteousness in three ways. First is in a legal sense, which we would call in the church justification. The second way is in a moral sense, which is sanctification, another word we use in the church. And third is in a kind of cultural sense, and that has to do with justice. I know that maybe some of you are thinking at the moment, Pete, what do those words even mean, mate? What are, the, what are you talking about? Well, let's, let's spend a little bit of time just on these words so that we know we define our terms so we know what we're talking about. Justification, okay? This is simply a big fancy Christianese word that scholars and Bible teachers use to talk about us being in right standing with God, okay? When God has justified you, you are now in right standing with him. It's a legal word. It's a, room you, sorry, it's a word you would hear in the courtroom. It is the act of showing something to be right or reasonable, and it is the act of declaring or making righteous in the sight of God. And God has done all of this for those who know Jesus as Savior. It's a gracious and judicial act of God, whereby we are granted complete absolution from all guilt and we are released from the penalty of sin. Amen? Isn't that good? When we are justified by faith in Christ, when we come to Jesus Christ by faith, God makes and declares us righteous. You are declared righteous this morning. Do you know that? Amen. You are in right standing in his very sight. Justification is a declaration made by a holy and just God. And you can see there at the bottom, it simply means acquittal. You have been acquitted of all crimes. Amen. And you are declared to be right before God. When you hear the word justification, I heard this years ago, think just as if I had never sinned. Justified just as if I'd never sinned. Because that's how God sees you. And this is one of the ways that the word translated uh, <clears throat> as righteousness in the New Testament is used many times to speak of our justification. But, that's all, that, that's good and well. This is not the way that Jesus is using the word. Okay, so we can, for the, for the time being, we can disregard justification. Here in the Beatitudes, Jesus uses the word in the other two senses of the word. So let's look at those now. Sanctification. The first sense that Jesus uses the word is in a moral sense, and this speaks of sanctification. This is another big fancy word that scholars and, and biblical writers like to use to speak of the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. To be sanctified, church, is to be set apart for God's special use and purpose. Okay, This is an ongoing process. Sanctification is something that starts at justification, but it continues throughout your whole life. I, heard it, I hope I get this right. I heard it like this. This is great. In justification, God takes you out of the world. In sanctification, God takes the world out of you. Isn't that good? He takes the world out of you. 
To be sanctified is to be set apart. And the truth for all of us is that after salvation, there is much to be done to change and refine our characters to more closely resemble the character of Jesus because that is our aim in sanctification, is to be more like the Savior. The process of changing and refining is called sanctification. And I know more than anyone that it takes a lifetime because I am nowhere close. Amen. We're all a work in progress. And sanctification plays a vital part in living out this kingdom character. And that's why Jesus includes it right here in his Beatitudes. This is an ongoing process which started when we first trusted in and accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. And it continues throughout our entire, our, our entire lives as we strive to, live, strive to live lives that are holy. That's, a, that's an important word this morning. Lives that are holy and pleasing to God. But there's also another sense in which this word is used. Church, are you still with me? Is it all making sense? Yes? Well, say yes. yes. Amen. Good, okay. I'm just checking. This sense speaks of liberation for those who are oppressed. It speaks into civil rights, to justice in the court system, within families, and also within business. And you know what? As Christians and as believers, we should be interested in biblical justice. We are to be warriors, justice warriors, justice fighters, justice soldiers, whatever way you want to put it. This is part of having a kingdom character. This is part of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. We are called to look out for those who are oppressed and those who are in need. We are called to support those and encourage those who are oppressed and have no voice. This church, this word is about liberation. It's about justice for those who cannot get it for themselves and we are called to this work. Righteousness includes justice. Righteousness includes speaking out for those who cannot speak for themselves. I remember we, do you remember Voices of Faith? No. The wee choir I was in back in the day, Mark and Mandy took it. Yes? Well, they had a wee song. I will speak out for those who have no voices. That's what, that's what we're about in the kingdom of God. I will, and then the next line was, I will speak out for the rights of all the oppressed. That's what we're called to do, church. The next line, I will speak truth and justice to those who are in need. Look, I believe with my whole heart that our God is a God of justice and that he wants his kingdom citizens involved in the fight against oppression and injustice. This is part of what we are called to. You know, life is not just about ourselves. We are called to bring justice to the world and help those who are in need. Maybe some of you are already thinking about the book of Micah. I know this is brother, one of Brother Billy's favorite verses in all of scripture in the Old Testament. I think my battery's died. Next slide. Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. To, to do what is just, to pursue justice. This is all about sanctification and justice. Can we stay in the Old Testament for just a few moments? 
As you know from our previous studies in the Beatitudes, Jesus always takes his lead and his inspiration from what we call the Old Testament. He knew the scripture so well and he goes there to find his foundation for every one of his profound proclamations. And for this theme of hunger and thirst, it's no different. A psalm that we all know so well. Next one, please. Oh God, no, there's one before it. I think this is working again, sorry. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they continually say to me, where is your God? Sing it. As the deer pants for the water so my soul longs after you. You alone are my heart's desire and I long to worship. Amen. Psalm 63, 1-2. O oh God, you are my God. Early I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. In a dry and thirsty land where there is no water, so I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. In Psalm 42, we hear the craving and the desire of the psalmist. His soul longs for God just as the thirsty deer longs for the brook so that it might drink the refreshing and life-giving waters so that its thirst might be quenched. Can you get that picture in your head? That thirsty deer coming to that beautiful brook. Desperate for that brook. Then in Psalm 63, we read of the psalmist earnestly and eagerly desiring to be with God. Early he seeks God. His soul thirsts for God. His flesh longs for God. Why? Because he is in a dry and thirsty place where there is no water. Church, this is desperation. This is a deep desire. This is an eager and an earnest longing for God. This is true hunger and a real and life-threatening for God and the things of God. This is desperation for the very presence of God, for the will and the purposes of God. The psalmist is longing after God. He is thirsting after God and he is hungry for God. And this is the very foundation that Jesus uses when he speaks to the people about a desire, about a desperation, about a hunger and thirst that needs to be satisfied every single day by God and in God. Church, it is only God who can satisfy. It is only God who can meet this need. It is only God who can calm this hunger and quench this thirst. He's the bread of life. He's the living water. But first, we need to be hungry. We need to be thirsty. Because this is all about spiritual appetite. It's about spiritual appetite. Church, where is your spiritual appetite today? Where is your appetite for the things of God? I'm talking to myself as well. Do you have one? You need to get one. Where are you when it comes to being hungry and thirsty for God and the things of God? If you're not even hungry, you have a serious problem. You know what? I was thinking about this. When you, when you hear someone say, no, I don't say this often, I've lost my appetite. What, what's usually going on? 
What? Tell me. You're sick. When you've lost your appetite, you're sick. Is it getting in? When we hear people say that they've lost their appetite, it's usually because something is wrong. Sick people lose their appetites, not healthy people. Let's go one step further than that. Dead people have no appetite at all. If you're dead, well, you don't know anything about anything. You don't want food or water. A good sign that you are spiritually alive is your hunger. It's your hunger. Dead and sick people don't want to eat. But those who are truly alive will always be looking for the next meal. You'll always be looking for the next meal. They will be desperate for food and they will be desirous for water that will quench their thirst. Church, are you getting the message this morning? One commentator put it like this. Hungry, thirsty people work hard, urgently to gain food. To hunger and thirst for righteousness then means we should urgently pursue righteousness. Church, this is all about a passionate desire to be right with God and stay that way. This is all about a desperation and urgency to be in right standing before God, but then to continue in that right standing by how we live and how we look out for those who are oppressed and in need. It is the starving who are happy and blessed, not the bloated. Get what I'm saying? It's the hungry and thirsty that are blessed, not the bloated. This is all about the hunger and thirst. It's not about being filled because we don't have to worry about being filled. God will do that. God will do that. Our part is to be continually, day by day, hungry and thirsty. To be obedient to the word of God, to be in prayer, to be in the word, to be living lives that are holy, that are consecrated and set apart for his glory and praise. Our part is to be desperate for the very presence of God and his purpose in our lives, to be continually, day by day, seeking his will in all we say and in all we do, to be like that deer, that beautiful deer, searching out for the brooks of refreshing water that our souls might be satisfied. And you know what? God will do it. If we seek him with all of our hearts every single day and desire to live lives that are pleasing to him as we pursue sanctification and justice. And you know what the most incredible thing about this is, church? When we hunger and thirst for God and for his righteousness, as we live our lives for him, as we pursue justice and peace for those around us, as we live sanctified lives that are holy and blameless before him, he gives us a greater appetite for himself so that we become more hungry and thirsty than we've ever been before. Isn't that amazing? Simply, this is a cycle of appetite. A cycle of hunger and thirst. The more you hunger and thirst for God and the things of God, the more you hunger and thirst to be with God and to be in his presence, the more you desire to live a life of purity and holiness for him, the more he will satisfy you and give you a greater, and, a greater hunger and thirst. Amen? Simply, let me put this real simple. The more you eat, the more you will want. The more of God that you eat, the more of him you will want. The more you drink, the more you will want because you will come to the realization that he is the only thing that can ever truly satisfy all of your desires, all of your longings and all of your deepest needs. 
True kingdom character displays itself in a deep hunger and a desperation in thirst for righteousness. True kingdom character displays itself in an insatiable desire to live for God, firstly in holiness, in reverence, in obedience, in submission, and in surrender. True kingdom character displays itself in a life when we consider the needs of the oppressed and the forgotten, when we speak out for those who have no voice and who are not being heard. This is true righteousness, sanctification, and justice. This is what we should all be pursuing day in and day out as we live our lives for Christ. Church, here's the truth this morning. Those who are filled are not those who have their hunger and thirst met, but those who are continually hungering and thirsting. A person doesn't stop hungering and thirsting for righteousness once he or she has crossed the line of faith. It is a constant pursuit to live a life of righteousness, to yearn to be more and more like Jesus Christ. This is a constant pursuit. This is a continual hunger and thirst. Let me ask you once again, as we come to a close, where is your spiritual appetite today? Are you spiritually hungry and thirsty for righteousness, for sanctification and for justice? Are you desperate for more of these things in your life? Do you desire to live a life that is holy and pleasing to God? Or are you simply happy where you are with very little appetite? Maybe you're spiritually sick or maybe you're even spiritually dead. All I can do is tell you where I am. All I can do is be honest with you, church. I'm not as hungry and thirsty as I used to be, but I want to be. I want to be. I want to be hungry and thirsty again for righteousness. I want my life to be holy and set apart for the king. And I want to be someone who pursues justice in the world and to speak for those who have no voice. I want to live a life that's sanctified and set apart. Does anyone else want to do that this morning? I want to live a life that stands up for the oppressed. I want to live a life that honors God in everything that comes out of my mouth and in everything that I do. But I need my hunger back. I need my thirst back. I need to live out the kingdom character that the king desires me to live. And when I do, then I know I'll be satisfied. God will satisfy all of my hunger and thirst, just like he did with that deer when it came to that delicious and delightful brook. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled, filled, satisfied, day to day, in every way. Church, this is where true happiness and where true joy is found in living for Jesus. It's found in nothing else. Nothing else in the universe will give you peace. Nothing else will give you joy. Nothing else will give you happiness. You can search the whole world over. You won't find it. Only living for Jesus will give you these things. Blessed are those who desire to be like Christ and live like Christ and pursue his righteousness. Blessed are those who desire to know God in a personal way, who live for him and for others. They get everything they need. You will get everything you need if you live for God and you look out for others. That's the message this morning. Deeply joyful and spiritually whole are those who actively seek right relationship with God and in doing so, discover that he alone can completely save and satisfy their souls. Amen? Say it with me. They have insatiable desire, yet find deep satisfaction. And you know what? The greatest satisfaction of all will be when we see him face to face and spend all of eternity with him. 
Then and only then will we be completely full. We'll never need to eat again. We'll be completely satisfied in him. We will be, in my own words, stuffed with the Savior. Stuffed with the Savior. That's what we will all be. Blessed are those who hunger. David, you want to come up? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed, joyful, nourished by God's goodness are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who actively seek right standing with God, they will be completely satisfied. Great blessings belong to those who want to do more to do right more than anything else, God will fully satisfy them. Those who are hungry and thirsty to be right with God are happy because they will be filled. Church, bless you all this morning. God wants a hungry and he wants a thirsty people. Let's get those appetites back to where they used to be. Are you with me, church? Say amen. We're going to sing a song that we haven't sang in a while. And I know many of you were thinking about it when I read that psalm. Oh God, you are my God. And I will seek thee earnestly. Church, bless you this morning. Thank you for your attention to the word. Go out this morning. Get your hunger and your thirst back. Get that appetite back for the things. I'm going to, get, I'm going to do my best to get mine back. Will you do yours? And as we sing this song, if you feel in your heart this morning that you're not where you need to be, Let this song speak to you. Use this song as a response to get your heart and your mind back into that place of hunger and thirst for him. Let's sing together. Thank you.